Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am talking with Richard Wolden. Richard is Distinguished Professor in Comparative Literature, History, and Political Science at City University of New York. He has done a lot of work on the Frankfurt School, um, French and German political thought. Uh, he's taught at a variety of places and written numerous books. Um, many have been translated into many different languages. And he is also the author of the latest book, Heidegger in Ruins Between Philosophy and Ideology. Uh, as many have, have listened to the show, they will know that uh, I'm a big fan of Heidegger's uh, philosophy, and I've talked about him uh, much on the podcast. And, uh, and I saw this book, um, I knew it was coming out, and then I saw a lot of people um, reading it and I, and I also was reading it. And so I said, okay, you know, I want to, I want to have this conversation, uh, with, with Richard. Um, he is fantastic. He's, he's, he's very, very, very nice. We had a, a wonderful conversation and I feel like we had a really honest conversation. And I, and I want to say at the outset, I think a lot of people sometimes misunderstand some of his positions, even though he makes it kind of clear in, in his in his writings, um, that he he's not necessarily anti-Heidegger in terms of his philosophy. Um, I think that what he focuses on in his aim is to look at some of the, um, you know, personal um aspects of Heidegger that are deeply troubling, and then also how that influences his um, philosophy and his thoughts. And what I walked away from in this conversation and reading the book, but really more from the conversation is, I think Richard's trying to just be critical. I don't I don't necessarily even think he takes a side. I mean, he says numerous places, we should read Heidegger, we should engage with his thoughts, but we should be critical. And I, and I think his... Um, points that he makes is that we shouldn't just gloss over these uh, really troubling components of Heidegger personally and, 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 and how much of that is in his, his thought. So um, I was very, very happy I had this conversation. Again, he was, he was wonderful. Um, a really great conversation. I, I really am proud of the conversation that we have. So we talk all about the book, um, and we talk about how the black notebooks of Heidegger uh, were found, what their nature and intentions are. We talk about how how do we read Heidegger's philosophy knowing he was anti-Semitic, knowing he was part of the Nazi party. Um, and, and, and to be fair, I again, as I said, I've talked a lot about Heidegger. Anytime I talk about Heidegger on the podcast – I will make sure to mention this. I don't ever want, you know, if someone's just here listening to that episode to not know that. And that's not to just kind of, um, you know, air all of Heidegger's dirty laundry of his personal life or his, you know, political belief system. I think it's, it's important to always remember that as well. And so I, I have never, I, I don't think, um, done anything that is, uh, just kind of, uh, glossing over anything about him. I think it's, you can definitely engage with his thought. You can understand the problematic nature and, and acknowledge it and maybe critique it and, and, and also uh, study his, his philosophy. We talk about the extent of some of the pernicious views uh, 
and destructive views, I would say, in some ways, uh, that Heidegger had personally, how much of that is in his work, such as in Being in Time? We talk about, obviously, Heidegger and the Nazi Party and him being a, a member of the, of the Nazi Party. We talk about the editing and re-editing of his works. We talk about Heidegger's views on race. Um, we talk about how um, his personal and political views, how does that impact his philosophy negatively or otherwise? We talk about the new right, uh, for such folks as, as Dugan and other folks in, uh, in Western Europe that are um, forming these extreme far-right uh, parties. And then we kind of end with, so how do we read Heidegger knowing all of these problematic issues? And, and something I kind of directly and pointedly ask Richard is like, look, you know, you've, you've done a lot of research in this. You've written a, a, at least a book on this and, and talked about this. So does that mean we don't, we don't read being in time? Does that mean we don't study his philosophy? And, and he very clearly and affirmatively says, no, we should read those things and we should critique it. Um, so I was really, really, really pleased with the conversation. Um, and, and I, and I really hope it gets folks that are fans of Heidegger and maybe people that aren't fans of Heidegger to hopefully listen to the conversation and you know, read his book and, and try and, and make your own kind of opinions or decisions about Heidegger and his place in philosophy and, and how the larger theme is how do we deal with folks that are, um, troubling or have troubling views, but also have really amazing contributions to a field or a discipline as well. Um, you can obviously see this in other examples, such as in the field of statistics. A lot of those uh, folks that made a lot of statistic uh, measures, you know, we're eugenicists and we're pretty terrible in a lot of ways. And But they also, you know, help us understand other things to uh, push our uh, scientific method. So there's other examples of this in other areas as well. This is fine arts and in, in, in other uh, films and books. And so we, we, we see this everywhere. And so it's, I think there's some general uh, application there. Uh, as always, you can listen to this conversation and all other conversations at my uh, free Substack, Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. Uh, get over there and uh, subscribe uh, so you can get this in your inbox. You can know when all the episodes that I post come out. You can listen to past episodes and uh, upcoming episodes. Uh, I'm also on YouTube. You can find me there. Same thing, Converging Dialogues, and uh, subscribe there and uh, make sure you share widely. And uh, now I bring you. Richard Wollen. I am here with Richard Wollen. Uh, Richard, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very much looking forward to uh, to talking with you. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into your book, which is Heidegger in Ruins Between Philosophy and Ideology. Uh, and as I was saying, it was, uh, was well-researched and very, very carefully considered. Uh, many of the, the things of, uh, of Heidegger and his work. So I, I, uh, I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, and I, I've seen other folks have been reading it as well, and they, they've had a, a host of ideas and opinions about it. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk with you about um, many of the, the stuff, uh, much of the stuff in the book. So before we get to it, uh, just uh, let uh, listeners know is kind of the snapshot of uh, who you are, your, your background academically and professionally, and uh, what you're currently uh, up to. Sure. Well, I uh, specialize, so to speak, in uh, history of European ideas uh, and above all political ideas. And I might say, (laughs) 
ideas pertaining to political extremes, uh, far left and far right. I uh, previously wrote a book on uh, the impact of Mao Zedong's thought on the Western left, especially in France, the United States, during the 1960s called The Wind from the East. And I, I had written before about uh, Heidegger's political philosophy when these debates really got underway as a result of new uh, archival research in the 90s and uh, was happily leading my, my life and my career, uh, not paying so much attention to Heidegger under the assumption that I'd contributed basically whatever I had to say. And then, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the specter uh, of, of Heidegger's uh, political convictions in the 30s arose once more with these voluminous black notebooks in the uh, circa 2014. And, uh, you know, uh, despite myself uh, or my, my preferences at the time, I was roped into giving some interviews and writing opinion pieces. Mm. And uh, then I, I was offered a, a contract to write a short book on it, which is uh, rather ironic given the fact that this book ended up being quite long. In fact, the manuscript I'd handed into my publisher was even longer. Mm. So consider yourself lucky that it, it <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, was received at, at under weighed in and under slightly under 500 pages, uh, mm -hmm. about 15% of which is notes. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I discovered quickly is that you can't, one can't treat these black notebooks. Uh, we can go into their, their nature in a few minutes, whatever, uh, in isolation from the rest of his thought. Mm -hmm. uh, even, uh, even though he started maintaining these philosophical notebooks, in 1931, uh, they do shed new light on his philosophical trajectory after World War One, and when he began uh, teaching uh, and worked as an assistant to Edmund Husserl at Freiburg. So, you know, it just opened up. Uh, it, it, they they are about several thousand pages. Mm. Uh, and and uh, they they a lot of the a lot of the the materials were have Heide, show Heidegger reflecting on his previous itinerary. So uh, it's it's hard to know exactly when to stop. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 nice the way you you, you put it. So I, I, as I've mentioned, uh, I've talked about Heidegger's you know, thought and his philosophy many times on the podcast with a variety of uh, wonderful uh, guests. So we can we can we can skip all of the the preliminaries in the intro people know who he is uh i guess i want to just get right to the to the core of it in terms of so what what are give us a little bit of the you started a little bit there a little bit of the context and the background of these black notebooks were they always known after his death in 70 74 70 72 whenever he died in the 70s uh, were they always known? Did they literally get unearthed somewhere in a box in his, you know, uh, library? So how were they found? How did they come out? And how did we, you know, scholars start to kind of pick apart some of these uh, notebooks and say, well, wait a minute, what's this about? What, what are all these things? Kind of tell us the origins of how we got to this. Yeah, 
it it seems partly because of the the title black notebooks would suggest mystery there's some debate as to whether that was really heidegger's uh title mm. or uh intended title or whether it's you know to be blunt something of a marketing strategy we don't have any documentation in heidegger's hand uh directly about either his intentions for this uh, 102 volume, I think it's now 104 volume collective works edition, nor the black notebooks. Uh, it's mostly it, the transaction was uh, conducted between his last research assistant, the late uh, Friedrich von uh, Hermann is his name, was his name, uh, and and the publisher Klostermann. But to, to come to your question, uh, it's much less mysterious than meets the eye, the origins. He mentions them in the, in the late 30s in uh, another, uh, the so-called ontological historical treatises, fat treatises that he was writing at the time. He didn't publish them, but he had a, a specific division. There were four divisions to his collected works uh, that, that he, uh, you know, intended to put these treatises, but he mentions uh, uh, hesitatingly or or sketchily uh, the outline of his collected works and what will be in them. And there is a reference to these uh, philosophical notebooks, and he calls them by the titles uh, of the individual volumes. So we have uh, in German, it's uh, the first volume, uh, first volumes. Uh, are uh, Überlegungen, which is considerations or reflections, and then the second. There, there are now eight volumes published, and that's how he refers to them, not as the black notebooks. But so these were slated, and he also uh, slated them uh, to be the last eight volumes of this mammoth collected works edition. Why did he? Uh, so he 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 held them in high esteem. Uh, what are they? Um, well, they're, it's, not, it's not a treatise. It's not a continuing argument. They're somewhat, you might say, fragmentary, but they weren't intended as a part, part of a larger work. Some authors you know, write notes that they intend to integrate into a larger magnum opus or something. That wasn't the idea. So, uh, and uh, it's, it, it kind of varies between philosophical seriousness and ad hoc reflections on the zeitgeist or the politics of the 30s. What's important is, and what sheds new light on his self-understanding in the 1930s, is that he attempts to link, uh, you, I took a look at your questions, you mentioned this uh, so-called turn, uh, in German it's Kara, in his work from the Dasein-centered approach of being in time, to his uh, concern with being or the history of being or the sendings mm -hmm. of being or wants to talk about in the 30s. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he tries to correlate this turn in his work to the history of being or directly to the, what he called the, uh, uh, the idea of being to, with, with contemporary political events. Mm -hmm. And that's especially true of, of the first few volumes of the black notebooks and then uh later in the 30s as uh the specter of war approaches and the crisis uh becomes more acute in europe 
again, the reflections turn to what you call in, in European parlance, actualities or contemporary events, current events. Mm. Um, so that's that becomes more more pointed uh, at the beginning of the notebooks and at the end. One, one, one other aspect, of course, that's especially in, valuable and insightful, part of the notebooks, uh, early notebooks, uh, uh, speak to his uh, year, approximately one year period as rector of Freiburg University from uh, the May 1933 to uh, April of 1934. And that's illuminating. He's reflecting on uh, the, the dawn of the National Socialist Revolution. And a lot is indeterminate in, in the first year. Uh, I'd say by August 34, when uh, the old uh, geezer, uh, uh, General Hindenburg, who's the president uh, of Germany in, in his uh, mid-80s, dies, uh, and Hitler combines both offices, then all bets are off and you have a full-blown dictatorship. But it was consolidated pretty quickly within the first several months. Uh, so, uh, but, but you know, it wasn't sure, wasn't wasn't clear what role intellectuals or philosophers uh, might have. Uh, so uh, there, there was a lot to be uh, determined. Mm. Yeah, this is a nice overview. I, I think the, the thing that's interesting is, it, so, so my understanding is that these are type of a, almost like a, I guess not an ancillary commentary on his own work, I guess, but something kind of as an addendum to to his big, you know, complete works or or, or what have you. And much of the time, people would not really care or, or say it was interesting for Heidegger scholars. I think what becomes most illuminating from them is um, very clearly lots of anti-Semitic uh, statements, uh, very Clearly, obviously, he was a part of the Nazi party, uh, and so a lot of the Nazism. So I guess the main question I have is is from the Black Notebooks, and, and this is what a lot of people will try to to say as, as to why Hitler, or excuse me, uh, Heidegger is so uh, problematic, is this kind of close association with Hitler or, or this kind of uh, reverence for him and things like that. And people obviously will have uh, issues with someone that's that's speaking of somebody that way. I guess um, if the intentions of the Black Notebooks are somewhat fuzzy, I guess, um, how do we take these uh, direct claims of anti-Semitism and of Nazism from there, and, and what do we do with it? And, how, and more importantly, uh, connected with that is, how do we then look at the rest of his writings mm -hmm. and his philosophical thoughts with those mm -hmm. types of themes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that there are a number of of important interpretive questions that the Black Notebooks raise in terms of Heidegger's allegiances to what one calls in German history uh, Germany's special path. Or, or as I put it in the book, uh, and Heidegger at times his Seinsfrag or question of being uh, takes on a, a an apocalyptic or eschatological guise. Uh, there was 
the conviction that somehow there was a, a redemptive mission for Germany or Deutschtum. And the, the anti-Semitism, which, as you indicate, sometimes is explicit, sometimes is implicit, goes along with that because they're they're in in German uh, radical right thinking after World War one especially although it's a tendency that emerged uh, decades many decades earlier but it was muted at that point and there were countervailing political and cultural tendencies earlier on um, this this opposition between uh, uh, Germanity, uh, or Deutschtum, uh, and Jewishness was a very important uh, opposition as, or, or set of antitheses, as if one precluded the other. This was true of uh, folkish nationalists, far-right nationalists. <laughs> Wagner's uh, famous essays on, essay on the Jews in music from 1850 ends with an appeal for uh, that, that, that Jews disappear somehow, uh, that they perish, actually. Untergehen is the word he uses. Uh, Untergang, uh, in the Spengler. <laughs> so so uh, it, there, there is a, an ideological consistency here. So, you know, the, the, the question is tricky, uh, or the way it's posed can be tricky, because it can suggest that, well, if we just get the anti-Semitism out of here, then we don't have to worry about any of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And were that only true? Because, in fact, there were a number of interpreters who have actually counted the number of times that Heidegger uses the, the phrase Jews or, or Jewishness or world Jewry uh, or the passages where this appears. And they can kind of quarantine it that way. But uh, as I said, word only so simple that there's a much greater attachment uh, as one sees in the black notebooks uh, to what I call, generally speaking, uh, Marx used this phrase in uh, uh, 1846, the German ideology, uh, but the German ideology underwent transformations and a radicalization, especially after World War I. And Heidegger, we we look now, not just the black notebooks. There have been volumes of letters, uh, and and there have been other treatises and seminars that have come out. And now we can see uh, how he was fascinated by these tropes uh, of of Germany's uh, you know uh, eschatological mission. Now it 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 uh, kind of. Uh, tanked a bit or was submerged during the 1920s, especially during the stability of the Weimar Republic, which was, you know, a parliamentary regime. Uh, and, uh, you know, despite the prejudices against it, it actually, uh, from 24 to 29, uh, 24, Germany overcame this terrible inflation, these images of wheelbarrows uh, full of uh, Reichsmarks to buy a loaf of bread. 29, of course, the great crash, and then all bets were off. Um, but for five years, it was fairly stable. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the ideological assaults, the political assaults on Weimar democracy and the Weimar Republic that occurred within the first few years from the left and from the right mm. had subsided. So one would presuppose that 
that this political system was going to, uh, you know, persevere. Uh, anyway, I, I hope that wasn't too long-winded. No, but I think, no, that's okay. You know, one, one could legitimately ask oneself, well, you know, the 20s, we, we look at his texts, and they don't seem very political, so this is just opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, that, namely the, the materials in the black notebooks or the speeches supporting Hitler in 33 and 34. Uh, you know, but but let's let's think about that and and find out um, to what extent they were opportunistic, to what extent they were expressions of of sincere conviction, not just political conviction. But this is this is the the novelty, the 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 new thing about the black notebooks. I think how tied these ideological figures and tropes are to his philosophy. So it's not like the first debates about this topic. It's not a question of uh, you know personal choices or biographical issues, uh, which many of which have been settled. It's a question of uh, how his philosophy in the early 30s, even before the uh, uh, Nazi seizure of power on January 30th, 1933, how these expectations and hopes played a role, the radicalization of his own philosophy, how this turn was correlated with uh, a belief in the salvific mission of uh, Germandom. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I remember wrestling with a lot of these uh, ideas you were putting forth in the book, which I really enjoyed. I, I enjoy that. You say Thank in you. the book that the book is intended as a modest contribution to a more demanding and long-term process of rethinking and reconsideration, which I think is, 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 is well said. Um, if, for example... <clears throat> Let's say I didn't know the black notebooks existed. And uh and and kind of what you're saying here is that we're seeing a lot of the things explicitly and sometimes implicitly explicitly stated that are you know terrible um against not only Jews but also against you know this elevation of kind of what you're saying this kind of eschatological kind of notion of the Germanic people x y and z. If I read being in time 1927 is when that was published. Would I be able to see a lot of these tropes, a lot of these ideas? In the book, I, I, it seems that you're positing, correct me if I'm wrong, that you can see this. Now, I've read Being in Time, again, I'm, I don't speak German, I'm no, I'm no Heidegger scholar, but I've read it a handful of times. And I mean, I, I think it would be something where, is it is it one of those, let me ask this way, if I'm looking for it, could I see it? Or even if I'm not looking for it, could I see these types of ideas or tropes that are very, um, you know, terrible about his views about you know people and certain people groups in something like Being in Time, which is largely seen as a work of, uh, you know, ontology, et cetera? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you how do you uh, navigate that kind of world? Yeah. Um... To be entirely straightforward, um, it's a as a as a preliminary remark. It's hard to see an English translation because the jargon of the the conservative revolution, which Heidegger uses often, decisiveness, folk, community, generation. It's a reference pretty much to the front generation. Kampf is in there. This this all occur. Most of this occurs in Division two on, uh, you know, historicity, what's called um, authentic historicity. 
it's it's hard to see in translation because this idiom of uh, the the German radical right is so ensconced in in the German language, and the words have special valences. For example, just real quick, uh, you know this word that Heidegger uses in German words. It's the word Entschlossenheit or decisiveness. One might say in an offhanded way. Um, decision becomes a really important word. Carl Schmidt in, in the late 20s coins the word decisionism, which is a meant as a, a critique of uh, so-called parliamentary and, uh, rule of law and parliamentary normativism. Uh, you know, uh, the kind of rational uh, promulgation of, of laws and legality, et cetera. Um, so the German translation and all translations are imperfect, especially in, in philosophy. Heidegger is very linguistically self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, is resolve. This is the way it's translated, resolve, which isn't uh, you know unsupportable, but um, at the same time doesn't convey the, the connotations and the valences that root it in this larger linguistic framework that that uh, you know, kind of gives it away. I mean, folk is in there too. Anyway, um, but but to be uh, you know uh, more more efficient here, uh, it's it, it it is it's not Nazi. I mean, the Nazis were nowhere in the mid twenties. They were nowhere until nineteen thirty. electorally. Um, you know, Hitler was the stuff of. Uh, I guess I've said this before. Uh, Charlie, you know, Charlie Chaplin humor and films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the great dictator, mm-hmm. uh, but. As he warned in the 30s, he was going to have the last laugh and almost did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not Nazi. Um, that doesn't make it, uh, you know, uh, anodyne uh, or, you know, non-threatening. I mean, there, there's a lot of, of course, as you indicated, this is a work in fundamental ontology. There's a lot, there are many important arguments and themes and mm-hmm. uh, recasting of the tradition of, of phenomenology along the lines of existential phenomenology. So it would be be foolish. Uh, and I, I try to, you know, uh, discredit this interpretation of my work to read it purely ideologically. But it is there. That's my, my point is, is that it's there in the concept of historicity. It's pointing toward uh, a different kind of uh, framework and temporality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does harmonize and synchronize with many of the concerns of conservative revolutionary thinkers whom he read and admired, like Carl Schmitt. I mentioned Ernst Jünger, above all, who wrote The Worker. So, so, uh, but I, I just, I just am uh, in favor of uh, an equitable interpretation of the full range of his views and, and uh, you know, not, not discrediting Heidegger, um, but also realizing the, the background here in the 20s uh, that that led to his support uh, of Nazis, not just a, and it wasn't just a, you know, a temporary support or mm-hmm. tepid support. Right. He right, went whole right, hog. Right, he right, went right, whole right, hog. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that was that was my next question. Is 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 even if you're, you know, uh, reading being in time, let's say, you know, even not even the later stuff in the fifties or whatever, you know. You still have to have everybody that reads Heidegger has to have some sort. I mean, if you're an honest ethical person, has to have some kind of reckoning of the fact that he was a member of the Nazi Party. So, let me ask you: 
in, in your mind, from from your readings of both, you know, primary stuff that he wrote, secondary literature and historical documents, you know, what can we say was his true involvement with Nazism? You, you clearly state in the book that he wasn't a Nazi philosopher. Maybe you could describe what that would have looked like. Um, but that he he was a member of the Nazi party and he spoke glowingly of the Nazi party. He didn't, um, at least clearly, as was my knowledge, even after the war, even all, he kind of became a recluse in the 60s and 70s, didn't um, condemn any of the stuff from the Nazi party. I mean, this is the stuff that really mm-hmm. just makes him terribly frustrating to deal with because it's like, okay, if, if I want the phenomenology and the ontology and some, okay, philosophy, you know, it's just pretty influential. I also have to deal with all this other nonsense that's terrible. It's just, it's like the worst, one of the worst things. So for you, what do you, what do you kind of make, or what's the kind of picture you paint of like his involvement with Nazism, how he isn't a Nazi philosopher, but what, what does it look like for, for you? Yeah. Well, I think what's come out as a result of the recent materials, the, the, seminars from the mid-30s, lecture courses, much of which, and uh, new volumes of correspondence, is that, uh, you know, his his philosophical and intellectual solidarity with the movement uh, was certainly more persistent and longer lived than we've been led to believe. I'll give you a quick example, um, which doesn't really answer your question in a way, but um, the the usual line on Heidegger's involvement uh, until very recently, it might be the case often enough, right, even now, is that, okay, he he was rector of Freiburg University for a year. His attempts to assume world national leadership, uh, national philosophical leadership, foundered for whatever reasons. And uh, he he decided he was unsuited for politics. He resigned. Uh, actually, there's false information about this. Uh, some of his supporters put out the, the, the word that he'd resigned already in February of 1934, which isn't true. He resigned in April. Uh, we Now we have his correspondence as rector. Uh, so, and one of the reasons he resigned was because he was getting a lot of flack from his colleagues, most of whom were traditional German conservatives and didn't appreciate this kind of radicalism, which is destroying the university, was was letting uh, Nazi students take over in many respects. So uh, that was a a source of of disappointment and frustration for him. But two weeks after he resigned as rector, he joined uh, an organization, uh, uh, the Academy of German Law, that was led by Hitler's personal lawyer, uh, and a uh, leader of the Nazi party at the Reich level, uh, Hans Frank, who also became a Nuremberg war criminal. You could know it at the time, but uh, uh, it's not hard to project either if you look at his writings and views. Heidegger joined this committee, this this high-powered committee called the Committee on Philosophy of Law, that for which there were obviously very high hopes. There, it was an all-star committee comprised of academics, um, Carl Schmitt, uh, lesser known in, in the Anglo-American world, Hans Fryer, the sociologist, uh, the philosopher Eric Rothacker. There was another leading member of the Nazi party, 
uh, it's it's hard to believe. Uh, there are only 16 members of this committee. Alfred Rosenberg, the, the ideology czar of the Nazi party who wrote the myth of the 20th century, was on this committee. We know Heidegger attended the first meeting on May uh, 3rd, 1934, at the Nietzsche archive in Weimar because he signed the guest book. His name is in the guest book. And he received a personal tour of the Nietzsche archive from uh, Nietzsche's uh, Machiavellian sister, uh, Elizabeth Foster Nietzsche, who was then 85 or 86 years old. It's, it's a pretty incredible story. Uh, so, so he was seeking to get involved on another level right after he resigned as rector. He hadn't given up his hopes. And there are, there are writings from this period that ex express uh, his continued support. To, to cut to the chase here, I think Heidegger, to the end of his life, you, you mentioned quite, quite aptly that you're looking for some kind of uh, act of dis distancing uh, on Heidegger's part from what happened during this terrible time from 33 to 45. And the remarks we find in the Black Notebooks are very disappointing. But more importantly, uh, in 1935, in this lecture course, Introduction to Metaphysics, he talks about uh, the uh, inner truth and greatness of National Socialism as opposed to the uh, debased value philosophies that are being uh, tossed about uh, in its name. So I think this tells us a lot. Namely, it suggests that till the end of his life, and I've seen nothing to contradict this bit of conjecture, that Heidegger indeed operated with this uh, you know, opposition between the, the real potential, the inner truth and greatness, of, that's the, the, the phrase verbatim of national socialism, uh, and uh, those individuals and those uh, inferior approaches to uh, philosophy and ideology that uh, kind of drove the movement into the ground and, and ruined its this potential for real greatness. I don't think Heidegger ever abandoned uh, this this conviction. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, the, the story you told was really really fascinating. Um, so this is more of a technical question, but I think important because you mentioned it at different points in the in various chapters in your book is <clears throat> how Heidegger had much of his works edited and re-edited uh, to take certain parts out, and then more some were more clearly anti-Semitic and showing some allegiance to Nazism. I guess how widespread was this in his works, and is it fair to say that you know were the editors just well-meaning and, and diligent? I mean, can we can we can we get them involved here too and say, hey, you were complicit in this, or should we kind of leave them out of it? Um, and you know, I mean, how much of this is you know some human error from certain notes? I guess the the question I'm having on that is is that maybe some people in the in the conversation will will uh, <laughs> or excuse me, listeners that are listening to the conversation will say. Well, wait a minute, you keep saying these things are coming out. And so maybe you can, I know a little bit about this, but you can explain how this happens of there's a, I'm assuming there's the, um, uh, um, uh, not, not society, the, um, whoever owns Heidegger's materials, the original copies. And then there's lots of things that haven't been released yet. And then mm -hmm. there's a deal of translation. So if you know German, mm -hmm. then the release and are they released to the general public or just to academics? On and on. Maybe you can just briefly summarize how that kind of works, but then talk about this idea of editing and, and re-editing that was taken out or that was done to take out certain uh, clearly anti-Semitic stuff in, in the works. 
Well, the problem started with the fact that responsibility for his manuscripts uh, became, quote unquote, or was de facto a family business. Mm. And responsibility for typing up his lectures and seminar notes fell uh, to his brother, Fritz. The correspondence came out a few years ago. It's not pretty, and it's highly selected. We don't really know what the full correspondence looks like. We we did find out that uh, uh, in already in December 1931, Heidegger gave Fritz a copy of what he called the Hitler book for Christmas. Okay, this is already in 31. So he'd read he'd read Mein Kampf, uh, you know, two years or 15 months before the Nazi seizure of power. But what's really macabre about this letter is that he ends it by telling Fritz that I'm giving you this this gift in keeping with the spirit of the season. You know, you you really want to choke at that point. But uh, anyway, it, this is it's anecdotal, but sometimes anecdotal anecdotes speak volumes at the same time. Uh, but I think that the 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 question of the estate it's it's a real mess. It's a real embarrassment. Let me let me just mention uh, I'm I'm sitting in in Berlin right now as I told you before, mm-hmm. and two last year so 2022 the uh, publisher Heidegger's publisher uh, the Klostermann in Frankfurt pulped pulped two volumes of the collected works edition because of errors that were uh, uh, well really omissions significant political emissions. Some had to do with anti-Semitism. These weren't accidents. These were left out intentionally. And so he had to he had to destroy these two volumes and put in new new volumes. Now these will never be uh the problem will never be resolved in the translations in every lang- every language one can imagine virtually uh because it's just going to be too expensive for publishers in English, Italian, French, Japanese, Chinese. Um, all of these nations uh, are very concerned with Heidegger's thought. The 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 omissions will stand for all eternity. Students will read these volumes as such. Um, and and one has to remember here just to to bring this to a close. The the biographical stakes involved. Heidegger was banned for teaching. For five years, at first in in forty five, at first it was indefinite. It wasn't clear he'd be reinstated. It, it ended up lasting for five years, and it wasn't clear he had a nervous breakdown, um, which is sad, uh, because his whole project seemed to, to, along with the the regime itself, seemed to have collapsed. Uh, so it wasn't clear how he was going to kind of climb back into the saddle, mm. so so to speak. So part of the the uh, re-edited constitutive editing uh, uh, of his texts by sympathetically disposed editors, by himself, we have testimony of this effect, and by family members such as Fritz and his his son uh, Hermann, who also died a few years ago, was the the official uh, keeper uh, of the the papers Heidegger's estate, literary estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they made sure that certain documents didn't appear. And and just I'll I'll just end because you know I talk about this in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to give everything away, <laughs> but but uh, you know in a couple of key instances, 
the the only reason that specific seminars or lecture courses or letters were eventually published um, by by Klostermann or by by another press was that the 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 uh, keepers of the estate in the German literary archive in a city called Marbach gave researchers the wrong dossier, the the wrong file, and in, in a couple of cases they caught they couldn't cite from them legally, but they copied out the material and let it be known in public what was in these exchanges of letters, what was in these seminar courses, and you know to to not to put too fine a point out, but embarrassed. Uh, Heidegger's, uh, you know, literary uh, supervisors or editors mm. to find come out and publish it because otherwise the, the word had gotten out that they were suppressing these materials. Mm. Okay, so that's that's another aspect aside from the the conscious, uh, you know, omission of specific passages. And we have testimony by some of his research assistants as to how this was done. So mm. uh, I, I I do spend some time on this because I think uh, people. Uh, in the English-speaking world, world, should know uh, what happened. It's not a pretty story. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think it's like you said, it's a mess. <laughs> it, it certainly sounds like a mess. There's, there's kind of along with this uh, thematically, I guess. You, you mentioned in the book, which I thought was was, was interesting, and, and and I'm curious for your thoughts here on this. So there seems to be so so there's so there's the the text itself so we we've talked a little about i mean we 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 done the autobiographical stuff we we know what what's there unfortunately there's some of the political stuff there's certainly some of the um uh some of i guess intentions et cetera and then some of this more technical stuff in terms of editing and re-editing i guess in terms of interpretive differences so specifically um you say that many heidegger scholar Scholars will say that Heidegger shunned race thinking. You know, this 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 fascination on you know how how we could use this idea of race thinking, which was maybe more unfortunately in vogue at the time. And but then he's talking about uh, you know like as you mentioned, you talk about Jews in a certain way, talk about this anti-race, all this, this seemingly contradiction. So is he what, what in your vantage point? What do you think is going on there? Because it does seem like a contradiction and. And of course, right? I mean, can you really know what was going on, or was he, you know, cherry picking of sorts? But or do people cherry pick like this idea of, well, see, he was condemning and shunning race thinking, but then he's also saying all these other things about uh, different folks. What, what can we what can we make of this? Well, I think that's an it's an important question because it's it's in a way it's not a contradiction if one realizes that there were competing strands of race thinking in Europe mm. in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, it's certainly true for Mussolini's Italy. Uh, we associate Nazi Germany with uh, kind of hardline, hardcore, if you will, biological race thinking. And Heidegger was opposed to biological race thinking because it was reminiscent of 19th century scientific thought. And he was uh, a critic of this paradigm from the standpoint of his early uh, existentialism, et cetera, and notion of Dasein, and um, you know, which is one of his real breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. But there was a competing paradigm, very prominent in Italy, and it was actually embraced by a number of uh, leading European fascist intellectuals, uh, people like. Paul de Man, actually, actually, he was quite young at the time, but his 
uncle, Henri de Man, was a leading European socialist in the 20s, uh, Belgian, uh, and highly respected, began a correspondence with Mussolini in the early 30s and, and became uh, a fascist uh, and a supporter of collaboration with Nazism, with the Nazis uh, after 1940, the invasion. So there's this paradigm of spiritual fascism. It was very popular in France. Why? Really p- simple, because the Germans seem to do the biological version. So we're going to do something more, uh, you know, exalted and and uh, more aesthetically uh, grand. These, these were the falls of Charles Maurras and Axiom Frances. Um, no less lethal, fundamentally, no less anti-Semitic. Mm. Um, but but uh, and and when you start breaking down the nature of national socialist race thinking, you take a look for it wasn't especially consistent. So, uh, I mean, Hitler wasn't a systematic thinker. Nazi, there was no Nazi dogma that would expel you, excommunicate you from the party if you didn't adhere to a certain plank. Mm -hmm. Uh, Implicitly, you needed to be an anti-Semite or against Jews, et cetera. But, you know, no one submitted you to a test every six months uh, and so forth. So what's important here is that, I mean, to take a, a good example, it's the one I use in the book. If you look at this text by Alfred Rosenberg, uh, The Myth of the 20th Century, which was considered after Mein Kampf the leading statement of Nazi ideology, um, you know, although though one should say that According to lore, Hitler never read it. I and mean, why did he need to read about an ideology that he basically conceived? But it's it's filled with notions like a race soul and, and a race mysticism. Mm. So it's kind of hard to get that from cell biology uh, or genetics. So the whole thing was a mess. It wasn't scientifically uh, valid. There were scientists, of course, all over the world who tried to make it work. And eugenics was, of course popular in the Anglo-American world and everywhere, but it, it really didn't have a scientific basis. Um, so so you, you, you've got lucid, you, one of the major currents of race thinking in Nazi Germany was phys, physical anthropology, mm. which is just guesswork. You look at these photos of people, they look different. You try to typecast them as members of different races. I mean, in retrospect, it's it's laughable had it not been the basis for the reorganization of Europe under Nazi hegemony, where races were cat Slavs, et cetera, were yeah. characterized as, uh, you know, uh, untermenschen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or inferior. So, so uh, you know, unfortunately, there was a, a lot of leeway for different different ways of interpreting race. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, again, complicated. I guess the... <laughs> The one other thing here is uh, kind of go back to the to the the big themes, and then then uh, we we can uh, finish up with some of the more modern stuff here. But one of the big themes that I guess for me, and I think maybe for other folks, is how, how much. So so two two points. One, how much of all of this terrible ways of thinking about people and people groups um, is you know how much how much is the the well been poisoned right can i read about worldhood can i read about dasein can i read about being in the world and you know got to be all worried that i'm you know kind of 
smuggling in anti-Semitic notions. You know, I think that's that's I think that's where most people get nervous about about this stuff, and that's it's an important question. And then I guess second to that is, and, and there's some work that's been done on this with Nietzsche, and and again, there's a lot of interpretive things there, and we won't get into Nietzsche here because it's you know we're talking about Heidegger, but as an example, I, I found that a lot of, and I guess you could do this with any philosopher, but a lot of these uh, philosophers, we we take a lot of the kind of the good stuff that we like, right? A lot of the works of wisdom or things of ontology or things of phenomenology, and that's great. But what I've learned in an accurate reading is these guys are a product of their time, and a lot of them are doing political thinking. Now, it might not be direct, straight political philosophy, but Nietzsche has a lot of political ideas in his philosophy. And to read Nietzsche has to be understanding the context he lived in and the political statements he's making. I mean, he wasn't a great fan of democracy, right? <laughs> and, and and many, many other things. So the same here with Heidegger. You know, how much generally you can read all of those things, but can you or should you? You can answer that. But or how would we separate his political ideas from his actual core elements of philosophy? That many will say, well, you know, yeah, 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 he's part of the Nazi party, but I'm reading about being in the world. I'm not reading about, you know, yeah. what, what the National Socialist Party was doing. How do we divorce that or do we not? What do you, how do you make of this? Yeah, that's, that's obviously an important and troubling question. Let me, before answering it explicitly, let me step back for a second and address something you said in the context of your remarks with respect with which I agree, uh, Nietzsche, uh, it's not, you know, uh, politics along lines of voting and organizing political parties, uh, canvassing, it's writing up bed pieces, et cetera. It's something right. much more, he called it great politics. So it's mm -hmm. meta politics. So it's mm -hmm. aiming at something greater. Uh, right. Uh, now in both cases, you mentioned, and it's not, it's accurate that they were persons of their time. And Heidegger is a philosopher of temporality and in German, it's Zeitlichkeit and historicity. Um, so this is important too, for in another respect, in terms of his self understanding. But one must also be frank, and this, this isn't to, you know, uh, uh, contradict what you said at all, but, but there's a spectrum of views. In this time, in this time period, Certainly. some people were, were dissidents, and of course, some people were communists, and some were social democrats. Uh, not very many were uh, ardent republicans in, in Germany for various historical reasons, but uh, one of which was the Versailles Treaty, of course, and it's unfair treatment. Um, but there was a spectrum. I mean, let's, you know, Hannah Arendt says, uh, you know, I think you allude to this in one of your questions. Mm -hmm. That uh, in this uh, apologia she wrote, well, of course they were they were lovers, so the heart, you know, has its attachments, which mm -hmm. I think we all understand. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Heidegger didn't live in his time. He, he his thinking is a wind that blows from uh, two thousand years ago, et cetera. Well, but doesn't you know? First of all, it wasn't true because we 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 know from the black notebooks and from the letters that he wrote in in the early thirties, especially how uh, he he subscribed to the Nazi newspaper, the Volkssche mm -hmm. Um 
he kept up with with current events. He was an observer. Uh, but uh, so, you know, the 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 being I, I just read something along these lines today. Maybe this is why it's kind of sticking in my craw a little bit. Um, in fact, I'm supposed to go to a, a, a city in Germany tomorrow where Heidegger taught for Fort Marburg and respond to some papers. And one of the, the presenters starts off by saying, yeah, Heidegger was caught up in the complexities of his time. Again, there's no question of responsibility. There's no question of taking responsibility. There's no independence or individuality. It's, you know, the, the Germans used to have, fortunately, they're much better now, this uh, rationalization for what happened uh, here. I'm, I'm in Berlin uh, between 1933 and 1945. They would call it, it was like an accident that occurs in business, but they have one word to, to describe this, a betriebsunfall, a business accident. You know, it was just, these things happen. Um, well, that that really doesn't do justice to the, the decisions that were made and, and the other possibilities and the roads not taken. But Heidegger, to come back to, you know, being in the world, Dasein, being with all these categories, there's there's no way that his uh, ideological enthusiasms of the 30s cancels this out. Even if he's talking in Division Two of being in time above folk and generation, community, whatever, um, it would be uh, short-sighted and and uh, anti-intellectual, anti-philosophical to try to dismiss the, uh, a book like this on these premises. We have too many eyewitnesses. Uh, who went on to become significant philosophers who attest to the nature of this book as a, as a breakthrough. So, uh, but, but, but that doesn't really answer the question. And the, 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 the answer to the question really means, uh, this is going to sound like a cop-out, but it means do it means doing the work. It really means examining the categories, not for ideological hidden ideological valences, uh, but uh, in terms of a, a more general project that was tied to history and historicity uh, and, and how Heidegger thought about these categories and how he thought that his fundamental ontology could address the problem of nihilism and the crisis of civilization. We have that in the first half of Being in Time with the, the depiction of Dasman, the day, and the inauthenticity. So what's the relationship between inauthenticity, inauthenticity. How do we get out of this morass of, of that's a bit simplistic, I, I admit. But but what are the the you know how does one get from division one to division two from inauthenticity to authenticity? Um we, we you know we have to just we we need to treat Heidegger like uh any other thinker we read like as critically uh you know as someone who can be discussed in a group of uh, you know, uh, intelligent peers, and we can trade views and insights, that, which we do presumably with any other thinker or philosopher or op or opinion writer, etc. He has to be subject to the the same type of uh, criterion and and scrutiny. Uh, just this conference I'm going to tomorrow. Uh, you know, my my wife is German, and she 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 sees this. She sees through this. It's like, you know, yeah, they, 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 many of them, uh, they've been reading Heidegger for years, if not decades, 
And yeah, I mean, he, it, it's tragic. He's human. He's, he had flaws. He, he had failings, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But they still fall back on, on admitting this. They fall back on the, the fundamental categories uncritically. They don't engage with the, the, the nature of the concepts. I'm not even talking about you know, criticizing them on political or ideological grounds. I'm just talking about working through them as we should do with, with any text. Mm. So, sorry, I've just been reading some of these papers before, and it's like, you know, you 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 come out with the the admission that yeah, he was anti- yeah, he got caught up in the zeitgeist, um, but still, you know, we have these findings, the the criticism of technology, et cetera, that you know are 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 the key to understanding the modern world, et cetera. We're only that simple. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I look, I, I think no one is beyond uh, criticism for your ideas and for everything else. And I think it's, it's, it's totally fair to say like, hey, you have some good ideas about ontology or phenomenology, but what also do we see as a, as a critique of it as well? And that's even removing any of the, the autobiographical stuff as well. So I, I, I would agree with you there. Um, so, so briefly, but before, uh, before, uh, before you, uh, head off, <laughs> I know it's uh, late over there, um, is two quite So it's basically the same question, but just I'll, I'll kind of generalize it first. So you talk at the, I think it's the last chapter in the book about, uh, the new right today, which has been obviously in the U S and then obviously in Europe as well, places like uh, France and Italy and, and a lot of other other and in the AFD and Germany and et cetera, many, many places in Hungary and I think so. A lot of a lot of places on the new right today in Europe and then obviously in the US. Um so maybe you could kind of give, you know, I mean, is it fair to say that modern day uh extremism can tie it back to Heidegger? Is you know, is is that a fair thing to say? Um you can maybe generally answer that. And then I, I do want to ask you because you spent a few pages on it about uh, Dugan and his philosophy. So maybe maybe tackle the new right thing, and then and then we'll tackle Dugan. Well, Dugan's the Russian representative of the new right, and one can yeah. uh, trace the affiliations very very closely from once uh, communism collapsed in '89. He began traveling in the West, and he met uh, French leaders of the French Nouvelle Droite or New Right, like Alain de Bonnois in, in Italy. He met the Nazi Maoist Claudio Muti. And, and, you know, it wasn't easy to get some of these texts in uh, Russia uh, during communism. So the link is there is very correct. But let let I, I don't want to mislead readers uh, or your listeners. Uh, I'm not making this <laughs> Machiavellian argument that Heidegger is somehow behind the new right uh, <laughs> or that the new right um, in its various incarnations, uh, the, the, the alt-right in the U.S., uh, I've mentioned the Nouvelle Droite uh, in, in France, which it was the uh, you know really first sophisticated form of a post-fascist right in the 60s coming out of the Algerian War, et cetera. And you mentioned correctly the the AFD, the Alternative for Germany, uh, here. Uh, and in you know Germany, it's the Neue Rechte. Austria, they have a different branch um, and a prominent right wing party, uh, the uh, FPO, um, misnamed free, the Austrian Freedom Party. Uh, but but uh, and the this identitarian movement, but. I think from the the 
discussions of my book, one can see why it would be plausible for, after the fact, for these people who, who try to present intentiously and consciously a more intellectually sophisticated, hence palatable, hence acceptable to uh, a middle range of, you know, the middle class, really, uh, moderate, people who are here, heretofore moderate, uh, version of post-fascism or neo-fascism, uh, why they might re rely on Heidegger's thinking for prestige, certainly, uh, he's often considered to be the leading philosopher of the 20th century, uh, but also one can ground one's, uh, you know, ethno-nationalist convictions in Heideggerian concepts such as uh, rootedness in soil uh, and, and, you know, uh, kindred concepts, et cetera. Also, but very importantly, his critique of enlightenment mm. and uh, his critique of the Western democracies as nihilistic. I mean, it's it's a standpoint that, you know, he took from uh, both Nietzsche and Oswald Spengler's decline of the West is very important. So, you know, I, I don't want to uh, go on on a limb and, and uh, claim there's a... a, a a copy of being in time under the the pillow of all these people, uh, but you know, and at first your tendency is these these interpreters aren't especially sophisticated either, uh, even the German ones, uh, sophisticated interpreters of Heidegger. But <laughs> there's just so in, in all these contexts, I wanted to write a short chapter on this problem, and then you have Dugan in a Russian context who whose name was on the front page of newspapers around the world uh, last August uh, and before, uh, but but with this unfortunate uh, targeting of his daughter yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. for assassination, mm -hmm. uh, he was the obvious target. Uh, mm -hmm. But, but uh, you know, one shouldn't exaggerate his role in, in, in Russian foreign policy. Uh, but for, for over 20 years, he's been obstreperous uh, ideologue uh, embracing the idea of Eurasianism and Russia's right to mastery of uh, the heartland. Uh, this geopolitical thinking, he lectured to the Russian Academy of the General Staff in the late 90s, and it took a while for, for Putin to figure out <laughs> where he stood. He's been in office for 24 years, uh, uh, you know, whether or not he needed an ideology. Um, but, but as I try to point out in the book, it's it's quite telling that in 2014, after the uh, annexation of Crimea mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the incursions in eastern Ukraine, the Donbas yeah. uh, region, he began using this phrase of Eurasianism. Now, Dugan's mm -hmm. not the only one who's used it mm -hmm. to justify uh, Russia's entitlement to geopolitical intervention in this part of the world. Uh, the Heidegger connection comes in with, with Heidegger's in part. Uh, Heidegger's thinking, as I try to claim in the book, at least in, in the 30s, was Germanocentric uh, with this, this German uh, salvation consciousness of sa saving the world. Dugan agrees with Heidegger's framework, but claims that Heidegger had the wrong country. It's not German, Germany lost, after all, but it's Mother Russia that's the, the nation that's going to do this. So, uh, and, and uh, you know, that, that view, I mean, 
you know, all nationalisms are unfortunate in this respect, but some are more unfortunate than others uh, and more predatory than others, as, as, we, as we've seen. So, uh, you know, this this bears an that he's he's the he is the self-styled leading Russian interpreter of Heidegger. He writes books on Heidegger. Mm-hmm. They're bad books, um, but in a way, that's beside the point. It's it's the the what we learn from the affinities he perceives between uh, you know his uh, ethno populist ethno nationalist views and Heidegger that are rather telling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I, I'm loosely familiar with him, and I know he's got a, a certain kind of philosophy as a kind of fourth way, or for, I forget what the name of it is, or right. something like that. Right. And it, I mean, I, I'm not close to it, and I don't, I, I, you know, but I, I've loosely read it, and it it's not, there's a lot of nationalism in there. It's a lot of less, a lot of nationalism in there, and I, I think more of the worrying kind, the maybe pernicious type than the you know, just feel good about your country type, but um, it's, it's, it, it is interesting how Heidegger continues to get used. So the, the last question I have here is, um, so what do we do with, with Heidegger? What, what do we do with him? Right. Um, this is the, the, the continuous question here and, and I'm not expecting a kind of, uh, uh, you know, knock it out of the park kind of uh, answer here per se, but you know, can we, can we and should we still engage with Heidegger's ideas on their merits, whether it's on his essays on technology, whether it's the stuff in being in time, whether it's, you know, whatever it may be, um, or do all of the things you're talking about in the book and have talked about here, his personal beliefs, taint him too much where we shouldn't read Heidegger, we should ban his stuff, we should, no one should read it. And maybe I'm making too much of a false dichotomy here, but what what do we do with, with Heidegger and more more specifically, what do we do? with reading and studying his ideas for you know, college students or people in grad school or, or, or folks like that, or just a casual person, how do, how should we, how should we treat it? Yeah. Well, I've had some of these discussions along this line since the book has come out and, you know, to take one extreme that, that you, you know, mentioned, not that you, as as a possibility, I mean, the last thing we'd want to do would be to ban Heidegger, uh, you know, uh, or to put some kind of quarantine on his work uh, because of its association with National Socialism. Uh, that would be unfortunate. That would be uh, anti-intellectual and, uh, in fact, discriminatory. Uh, and I don't think serious readers or, or thinkers would want to go down that path. Some of the conversations I've had with philosophers, I, I, I had a really interesting discussion. Someone who teaches and writes on Heidegger um, uh, at a university in the Northeast. I, I really, he wanted to have a Zoom session with me a couple of weeks after the book came out. He was really troubled. Uh, he worked on the early Heidegger. I think he'd done some translation. And he asked basically more or less the same question you just asked. It's like, is this okay? I mean, tell he said, tell me what tell me what you think. I really want to know. Am I barking up the wrong tree? And I said, well, I, I, he was talking about some some lectures Heidegger had given that that he and a colleague had discovered in the archive. 
from the the mid twenties before being in time. And you know, I just said uh, succinctly, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, I, I don't think there's a great concern about ideological taint to this text in this period. It's mostly concerned with interpreting. Uh, you know, Greek philosophy and uh, along his lines that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have any real qualms about this, but I can see how people will read my book and get another uh, impression. So what I what I tell, I've had some discussions with philosophers, uh, you know, about the path forward, so to speak. And all I'd say at this point is like, well, teach both aspects, teach both sides. Do what you've been doing, integrate Heidegger in the sequence in the history of 20th century philosophy or however phenomenology, but but also give due due diligence for the extent of his compromises and, and shall we say, delusions during the 1930s. You know, don't suppress or falsify uh, the the depth of his Germanocentrism at the time. And and I think the point you mentioned 30 minutes ago. Uh, Xavier is is really important one is that unlike his his companion de route uh, fellow philosopher Karl Jaspers who wrote this book on the guilt question of German guilt 1946 Heidegger never came out with an explicit uh, self distancing from the regime uh, any kind of criticism he he uh, didn't really do the work or care about doing the work. In terms of examining uh, some of the the failings of, uh, shall we say, German historical uh, and political development uh, that might have led to 1933, not teleologically, mm -hmm. but you know, de, de, de facto, uh, it didn't happen overnight, um, and there was no, you know, iron necessity leading to this uh, Nazi seizure power. But, you know, have your students come away from the class being informed, mm -hmm. uh, you know, young people or, or you know, citizens, because uh, it's an it's a, it's a opportunity mm -hmm. to learn about this. Even if you're not a historian, you don't need to be a historian. Historians get too ensconced in detail often. They don't see sometimes <laughs> the forest for the trees. Yeah. But, but, you know, it, it's, 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 it is an opportunity. What was he thinking? We have these political texts. Um, where do they stand in the movement? Just you could spend one class on it, and the students would reflect on it. And, and given your your penultimate question, uh, your your previous question about the uh, currency of the new right today, and all the Hungary, et cetera, and all the inroads uh, it's making around the globe, this is an important topic to address: um, the continuities and discontinuities between historical fascism. And whatever you want to call it, authoritarian populism, uh, the far right is is somewhat neo-fascist. They want to cover it up because mm -hmm. uh, you know fascism left uh, you know a series of genocides and and parts of Europe were turned into a cemetery, so it didn't have a good rep at the end. Look at the photographs of German cities. Uh, you know uh, the, the 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 small villages, most of which weren't bombed, are are beautiful. Uh, I've gotten the opportunity to visit some, but the major cities like Berlin and Hamburg, you know, were pretty much leveled. Uh, so so they're they're that's one of the reasons they go to the conservative revolutionaries 
figures like Heidegger and Schmidt and Ernst Junger and, and Spengler as an intellectually acceptable form of this discourse. Although, you know, <laughs> some of those figures were pretty close to, to Nazism and supported it. Um, so it's, it's, it's troubling, uh, especially in Schmidt's case. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're 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 right. Is I think we, it's interesting. I I feel I think sometimes people's intentions are questioned, and sometimes that might be fair. But you know, I I, you're, I talked to a lot of historians on the podcast, and and um, and when 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 certain historians will will write something about you know, it doesn't get couched this way anymore. But there's a kind of a, a new, not a new history, but a history we don't hear often. There's like the main narrative that we hear all the time, but you know, a lot of the times it's you know what else was going on in the world, and and I think the same thing with with Heidegger is true. Is you shouldn't be. I mean, I understand why for people that first learn this, it makes them uh, a little queasy, right? It's like, okay, we're going to read this guy that was part of the Nazi Party. Like, maybe we shouldn't do that. And you know what I say is, you should read everything, and you should have an understanding of how things are complicated and and people are complicated, and judge the ideas on on their merits. And condemn the wrongful beliefs, or if if, if that's your if that's your values or your morals or ethics, and, and and you know hold two things in your head at once. And I think you know I think Heidegger has no shortage of that. So it's it's definitely always a kind of wrestling kind of thing. Um, well, the book is called Heidegger and Ruins Between Philosophy and Ideology. Uh, it's out everywhere through uh, Yale University Press. Uh, where's the best places to find you online or, or, or uh, uh, any websites or anything that uh, people can find you outside of the book or anything that's important? Yeah, I think probably the best place is uh, through my university, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Graduate Center of City University. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who has, I've gotten some interesting comments via email about the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'd encourage readers if they want to pass along their thoughts, I'd be mm-hmm. happy to. Uh, read them and, and respond. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, Richard, I mean, this was uh, so much fun. I, I really, really enjoy talking about these ideas and Heidegger's work and uh, I enjoyed your book. And so I was uh, very uh, honored to have you come on and, and chat about it for, for a good bit. So uh, big, big, big thanks. I'm uh, really appreciative uh, for you doing that. Thank you, Xavier. I, I enjoyed it very much myself. Yes, thank you.